Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, Super Tuesday edition of the program. We are going to talk nothing about politics. Yeah, we. I think we need a break. We've got the, well, the next GOP candidates debate is coming up on September 27, which is, uh, let's see, two weeks from tomorrow. But in the meantime, we're going to take today, the whole 90 minutes, and devote it to looking at culture through the lens of scripture, like we always do, but for a couple of different areas where our culture has changed, in some ways, for the worse, and in other ways where culture is changing for the not-so-bad and the potential for better, okay? Uh, Shannon Bream is going to join us. We're going to talk about her most recent book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Uh, This is about uh, biblical lessons on romance and friendship and faith, so not all of the love stories are like, you know, boy meets girl and rides off into the sunset, Uh, Pastor and author Mike McGarry is going to join us to talk about his new book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. Uh, This is a guy with 20 years in youth ministry experience who is finally helping the church. We're helping the church finally address the issue or issues, I should say, that plague young people that in many cases they left the church simply because the church really didn't have an answer for them. They'd come in and say, hey, I think I might be gay. Um, what do I do with that? And the church would say, well, go home, pray the game gay away, and once you're no longer gay, come back to church. You know, Or, hey, I got my girlfriend pregnant. Well, well, okay, well, then you can come back to church after you, I don't know what. You know, <laughs> There were a lot of young people who grew up in the purity ring years of the 80s and 90s and even 2000s who wound up leaving the church because their life was changing dramatically. And as it changed dramatically, they had questions that the church didn't have answers for. Well, the culture changed a lot. No question about that. This is the great thing about whenever I see like progressive Christians who will say things like, you know, we need to, Jesus needs to change a lot more. The the church needs to identify more with the, and then, you know, the fundamentalist side will come up and say, no, no, we're not doing that uh, because uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we don't have to change. Guys, here's the issue. I mean, the way I see it. On the one hand, you have a culture that is constantly changing, not so much because it's becoming more licentious and more horrible. People are just more brazen about it. Mankind has always been sinful. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden, and you see that in spite of their best intentions, Adam and Eve gave into the sin of knowing, simply, I mean, they didn't have this knowledge, they had an innocence, but when the enemy tempted Eve and said, hey, aren't you going to have that fruit? And Eve says, no, God said we can have this, 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 and this, but we can't have that. And he said, well, wait a minute, though. I mean, don't you want to be smart like God? Don't you want to have that same knowledge? God would want you that. He made you in his image and gave this fairly compelling reason. And they went, okay. And they completely succumbed to it. All they had to do was to take God at his word and say, God said, no, I'm not going to do it. So our sinful, rebellious nature has been a part of who we are from the beginning of the creation of mankind. So when we talk about the church having to be more like the culture, having to adapt, have to be more progressive, blah, 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 it has nothing to do with the sinful nature of mankind. That has been sinful since the beginning of mankind. That's number one. Number two, we live in a sin-saturated world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. 
So what that means then for us as Christians is that the message of the gospel has not changed, does not change, will not change. What needs to change, if anything, is maybe we aren't interpreting scripture right. Maybe we've been presenting a church that doesn't necessarily have, um, you know, uh, the most biblical of intentions. We might say that we do, but the reality is we don't. Okay, so that's that's not the church changing. That's not a progressive faith. That's the church just getting real about what the church really should be about. And third, then we look at the culture and there are things, so many places where the church will champion, oh, we need to change this and, and, and amend that and masculinity is toxic and you know we, we can't keep talking about traditional roles for people because that's a cultural stereotype, blah, blah, blippity, blah. And instead say, look, we have to be on guard to watch out for predators among us. There is a reason why in culture in times past, we had young women who were teaching elementary school and guys you know, got into the teaching once the kids had hit middle school and high school and you know, college teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the idea that that was somehow, you know, well, that's not right. I mean, it just, it really isn't right. Take a look at two examples of what's happening in the culture right now. First, the number of female teachers who have been accused of and convicted of sexual assault. Uh, it's, it's no exaggeration. I mean, I, I realize that it might look like that's all you see reported on in the news. I mean, obviously there's still men who are sexual predators, but understand this. And this is shocking as the child of a former public school teacher who would never have a, this issue at all ever darken our doorway one out of every three teachers in america right now who is charged with or convicted with sexual assault against a student is a woman and in many cases these are women in their late 20s early 30s early 30s uh, 40s who are engaging sexual contact with students who are 12 13 14 you know, let's face it, you know how interesting puberty can be, right? That I remember working in junior high ministry, we had a young lady in our, our group who was just paranoid that she was overweight. She was fat. She was 13 years of age. She was in the eighth grade. She was five foot seven and weighed 115 pounds. All the other girls in the group were like four foot seven and weighed like 65 pounds. And so Allison would walk around going, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. I said, no, you're tall. You got a growth spurt early. It happens, you know? But things change, you know, and, and trust me, if any male teacher looked at her in the wrong way and uh, tried to take advantage of her, we would have no trouble throwing that guy in jail. Well, the same holds true when it comes to the number of men in our culture now who have taken it upon themselves to get into the roles of uh, daycare, preschool teaching, elementary school teaching, nannies, things of that nature. And there is a case right now in... Um, uh, in Costa Mesa that just went to trial last week. It involves a guy who allegedly committed uh, various acts of child molestation uh, somewhere between January 2014 and May of 2019. He victimized 17 boys, at least 17 boys. And the way he was able to get access to these kids was he advertised his services as a nanny. Now, we're going to put the article up at thebottomlineshow.com. When you see the mugshot of this guy, you'll say, wow, this is really kind of, mm, uh, 
Why would anyone want this guy around your kids? But when you see the video of his court appearance, he presents himself pretty nice and normal looking. Uh, the man is called Matthew Antonio Zakaruski. It might be Zakchevsky. Sometimes when you get the Z-A-K-R-Z-E-U, that Zuski at the end is often pronounced Shevsky. Apparently, this is a guy who advertised his work online as a babysitter, caregiver, nanny, uh, said that he had lots of references, which apparently he did, and that he worked well with young boys. What he did not tell them was over a five-year period, they had been uh, sexually assaulted, these boys had. This is a guy who uh, had actually tried to leave the country and head out from Spain. He was taken into custody when he came back to LAX and flying back from Spain. After doing a thorough investigation of this case, what they found was uh, thousands of images and videos linking this man to... 17 total victims. The ages of the victims were anywhere from age 12 all the way down to age 2. One of the victims in question, a a boy who's being identified as John Doe, number one, and his mother uh, took the witness stand on the first day of the trial. They talked about how they got to know him. Uh, The boy is now 18 years of age. But uh, at the time, I mean, this goes back six, seven years, uh, he was hired through a website. Uh, She said in allegations, they only came to light after having a conversation with their son about safety around strangers and what is considered appropriate and inappropriate. And the boy began to tell her in pretty graphic detail how his quote unquote babysitter used to touch him. Turned out to be very, very inappropriate. Um, The defense attorney for the case, Jennifer Ryan, uh, told jurors that she was going to move to keep some of the evidence that was being shown from being presented in court because it might be a bit too graphic for some of the jurors. Now, that's a very interesting strategy, I would think, because on the one hand, wouldn't that be an admission of guilt? I mean, look, we've got proof here on video that this guy did this and you may not want to see it. But on the other hand, have you ever been in a jury box when they're doing a jury trial? I, I, I've shared this story before. And they ask you about the case and they want to see if there's a prejudice as to whether or not you could give this person a fair trial. I was actually uh, summoned into jury duty. This is probably 15, 16 years ago. Um, ironically, on one of my daughter's birthdays and was sitting in the courthouse there in Irvine. And it was in the afternoon and I really wanted to not be there. I wanted to go home and celebrate my daughter's birthday. So I'm praying. I was one of the first people called. I never get called. I was like number four. I had to go up in the jury box. And so they came in and they explained to us what the case involved. It involved a guy who was a doctor who had been driving drunk, had a history of DUIs, had never had his license taken away, and he wound up crashing through a red light and killing a couple of people in a hit and run. And I remember thinking to myself, well, there's a history of alcoholism in my family. And at that point, I was living with an alcoholic spouse. And so I prayed. I just said, Lord, can I give this guy a fair trial? Can I, I mean, do whatever. And God said, no. <laughs> it was really very simple. So when they came around, they asked me, do you think there's anything? And I said, hey, I'll be honest with you. And I told them the truth. And they said, all right, you're dismissed. 
And then the defendant looked at me and he mouthed the words, thank you. You know, thanks for not being on the court, because if you had an ax to grind, you could put me away without a fair trial. But it's interesting that the defense is using this tactic in this case, saying, now I want to tell you, I want to warn you, this is too graphic and we may not not be able to get enough jurors to, it's a long shot. If convicted, because there are 17 victims and there are how many counts? I mean, too many counts to, to mention. 34 felony counts, including 27 felony counts of lewd and lascivious behavior with a minor under the age of 14. I won't tell you some of the other ones. And then one felony count of possession of child pornography. Uh, If convicted, he is facing, I want to say it's 600 years in prison if he's convicted of everything. Uh, Happening right here in our backyard in Costa Mesa, brothers and sisters. Something happened in this guy's life where he was shown inappropriate love and horribly inappropriate affection to where he felt that this is the only way he can express that. Isn't it good to know that for us as Christians, regardless of our background, there is forgiveness, there is hope, and we're praying for this guy's salvation. But also there are some good examples and some healthy examples of what love and romance and friendship really look like. Uh, Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream is going to join me on the other side of this break to talk about her book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll hear from Shannon in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Our friends at Preborn always do such a great job of keeping us up to date with Bottom Line Show listeners, especially here in Southern California, who reach out to us and let us know that they are supporting Preborn. Uh, Milton in Lake Elsinore reached out over Labor Day weekend and made a gift of $840, a one-time donation, to support ultrasounds and the uh, making them available to women all throughout the Southland through Preborn. Uh, if you're wondering why $840, it costs $28 to provide an ultrasound. That's the images, the pregnancy test, the meeting with the technician to show you how far along you are and then to explain what your options are. And 85% of the women who go to preborn clinics and get the ultrasound test done for free to them, we pay for it. I mean, we as supporters of preborn, uh, 85% of the women choose life for their children, either to become a mother or to release that child for adoption. Do what Milton did. He picked 30. I, I'm not what sure the, the math was behind that, but he picked 30 kids to sponsor, 30 appointments at $28 a piece. donation, one-time tax deductible. Make your gift today, uh, 833-850-BABY, 833-850-2229, or go online to kbrightradio.com. You'll see a picture of a couple of cute uh, newborn twins. Click that banner, make your donation today. Well, special guest joining us today here on The Bottom Line, Shannon Bream, Fox News, well, the host of Fox News Sunday, which makes me so very excited. Easily the best news program on television right now, and I'm not saying that because Shannon's sitting here with me on the Bottom Line Show today, but it really is an excellent show. And the author of best-selling books, the newest is just now out. It's called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Shannon Bream, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you again. Our third annual visit, and uh, exactly. actually the last two were both on March 29th, so I'm sorry our, my schedule was kind of messed up otherwise. We just call it Shannon Bream Day here at the Bottom Line Show. Oh, I and love it. Yeah, I'm fans. honored to come any day. Any day in particular, but of course, standing invite here. Um, You have served in many capacities in your career, attorney, um, covering landmark cases at the Supreme Court as a reporter, which is always a, a helpful sign. There are a lot of people who look at what's happening in the world right now and say, you know, this has never happened before. But then when you look at the book that you have just published, we begin to realize 
you know what? I mean, there there are some things about friendship and romance and love that we find in scriptural times that kind of remind us that uh, the more things change, mm -hmm. the more they stay the same. Talk about that. Yeah, so right. So if you think about the bigger picture things like famines and wars and tragedies, yes, those things have been going on for all of humanity. And so we see how God was woven through those stories of the Old and New Testament, that he's very aware that he is not silent or absent in those kinds of sufferings. But they're really personal things too, like infertility and widowhood and financial ruin and illness and loss of a loved one. I mean, those are all universal themes that unfortunately um, have gone through time. And so when we look around today, we see how you know divided we feel in so many different issues. We think about Gosh, in the Old Testament, it was a serious Game of Thrones issue. I mean, there were <laughs> nations warring, there were ethnicities warring with each other. I mean, it was a really difficult time. So you're right. I mean, like, I guess in Ecclesiastes, I think it is where Solomon says, like, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Uh, but it's a good reminder to us that God works through all of those very difficult things. When we see what's happening in the culture right now as the definition of relationships and friendships and things like that, the kind of romantic love uh, notion has kind of flown out the window in terms of what God intended in terms of biblical romantic love versus what the culture now says, you know, romantic love is. It's kind of if you love someone, you're supposed to have physical intimacy with them because that's romantic love. You've found a couple of really good examples, though, in your new book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, that talk about what you call romantic love. Uh, talk about... <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned so, uh, Ecclesiastes. Let's talk about Song of Solomon for just a moment. That's probably one of the more confusing <laughs> passages in Scripture, yes. especially when you start talking about the way guys describe women and things like that. But <laughs> it, it really does describe the gift of love so very well. Talk about that if you would. It really does. And it's one of those books that you don't hear a ton of sermons on. And I'm like, okay, if we're doing love stories of the Bible, we got to weed into this. And so I'm going to call on some experts here because there are people who, you know, there are biblical scholars who disagree. Is it kind of an allegory for God's love for the Israelites or Christ's love for us? Or was it a real relationship? And the majority of them believe this was a real relationship. And you can see the yearning between these people. And I always say, it's not like God's like, wait a minute, what is going on down there? I mean, he invented us and he created us and he knows that our hearts are going to long for things. Our bodies are going to long for things. And here we see these two really describing how attracted they are physically to each other. But we also see the great respect they have for each other. And, you know, it, here the bride is describing to the groom, like you're a man of great character and everybody would want to be with you and in your life. I mean, it's beyond just the physical, but we see that these two are waiting to try to get this thing right and are so anxious to be joined in marriage. So it does kind of fly in the face of what the world tells us about relationships and just, you know, do what you want. It doesn't matter if you use people up and kind of climb your way to the top of whatever you want to do, whether that's work relationships, friendships, or quote unquote, romantic relationships. I mean, we really are called to a much higher standard of being each other's servants and helpers. And, and that's where you really get to real intimacy. That's not just the physical. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Shannon Bream is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about her brand new book called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. You kind of threw me off, Shannon, with the concept of, okay, we're talking love stories. When you discussed Adam and Eve, and, and the reason it threw me off, quite frankly, is I'm guilty as charged. Whenever I think of Adam and Eve, the first thing I think of is, well, great, original sin. Hey, you know, <laughs> so, open rebellion before God. Thanks a lot. 
I don't think about the romance at all. And yet there is a romantic component to the relationship. Talk about that if you would. Yeah, I love how in Genesis we see God going through each day of creation and he says, and it was good. He observes it as good. And then we see Adam by himself. There's no partner for him. None of the animals, he's named them. And God says, it's not good, you know, that Adam's alone. And so we see this beautiful creation of Eve. Um, They're both created in God's image. And, you know, she is not lesser than him in any way as a human, as a woman. I mean, God has her as his easer is the word that is used in Hebrew, a helper or a rescuer. This is not just someone who is silently sitting by. I mean, God gave them commands to, you know, go and populate the world and to be in dominion over it. I mean, they had jobs and they had a partnership. It was really a beautiful thing. But if you look at them too, I think sometimes we forget as parents, you know, Cain killed Abel. So their two sons, they lose them both because, you know, Cain is then, um, you know, sent off to be alone in the world. And we see that Adam and Eve turn to each other for comfort and they continue to stay together and build their family. That's after the tragedy of, you know, the original sin and being tossed out of Eden. I mean, these are people who walk through real tough things together, but as that first husband and wife that God put together, I mean, they stuck together and they work together through the really tough things. Mm. The Love Stories of the Bible Speak is the brand new book by Shannon Bream from Fox News Channel. Biblical lessons on romance, friendship, and faith. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Our New Testament entry into the romantic love is a couple that we think about at Christmas time a lot, but oftentimes it's more out of obedience and duty. It isn't necessarily much about romance, but we have to remember that Mary and Joseph fell in love at some point, did they not? I mean, unless this was an arranged marriage and we just missed that in the text. Yeah. And think about that. So they were promised to each other, essentially engaged or our, our equivalent of that. And mm-hmm. so when Mary turns up pregnant and she knows this is a divine assignment from God, um, she is visited. And then eventually Joseph is visited too. He could have walked away from her in that scenario. It would have been a terrible place for her to be in society, to be unwed and pregnant. Um, but he doesn't. He, he believes God's message and messenger, and he decides to stay with her. And then we see this devotion. It's very selfless because they're on the run from the beginning. I mean, when it's just a baby. Joseph has to protect them and provide for them and shepherd them into, you know, uncharted lands and territories to protect this young family. And I kind of like, was Joseph the greatest stepdad ever? Because he's mm, raising right. this son who will be the savior of the world. And they, of course, then have their own children, but they're building a family and really raising children. And all throughout this, whatever dreams they had maybe had for themselves as a young couple before they got married, um, all of that was given over to this divine assignment. So I, you know, we rightfully so there's a ton of focus on Mary, but I thought in this book, I really want to focus on Joseph too. I mean, and the, the love he must have had as a husband to be so sacrificial in going along on this journey and protecting this family. As we're talking about the romantic love and the biblical lessons on romance, as well as friendship and faith that we find in Shannon Bream's new book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak. Shannon, what's the response been like from your readers? I mean, obviously you've got a cadre of them now. I mean, this is the third year in a row. You've had a best-selling book that uh, that focuses on a biblical theme. What are you hearing from the, the readers and, and which of their stories is maybe surprising you a little bit? Like, wow, I didn't think that chapter or that story would really get to people the way it did. Yeah. You know what I really love is that I've heard from couples who say they're doing this book together, either taking Mm -hmm. turns reading to each other or they're studying it together. And I love that because so often, you know, the first couple of books, Women of the Bible Speak, Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak, obviously a heavily female influenced um, storyline through the Bible, although there are men obviously important and woven in all those stories too. And so um, I actually had a guy come to me in church a couple of weeks ago, stop me and say, I just wanted to let you know your women of the Bible speak stories 
we decided to do the study guide and do it as a men's group. And I thought, really, oh, I was a little surprised by that. But he How said, you know, we wanted to kind of do it to honor our moms and our wives and our daughters I and like that. really dig into the stories from the Bible that highlight the women. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear what this new book that couples are doing it together. And, and I'm hoping that it will, um, as it did for me in studying and writing it, just give you a new appreciation for the relationships in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the book is up at thebottomlineshow.com, and it's just now out. Shannon Bream, the author of The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. Uh, we've got that up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll get into the friendship side of this on the other side of the break as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Barr. Shannon Bream will not be one of the moderators for the next GOP uh, candidates debate coming up on the 27th. I believe Dana Perino has those honors, but we are grateful to have Shannon Bream with us today talking about her most recent book called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance and on Friendship and on Faith. Lots of love stories, if you will, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, but also the friendship of David and Jonathan, sacrificial love of Joseph for Mary. I mean, it goes on from there. This is a great resource, and I know you're going to love it. That's why I'm thrilled that we have a copy of it to give away today here on the Bottom Line Show here on this Super Tuesday. 800-227-5278-800-227-5278-800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, Shannon Bream's book called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. It's up at thebottomlineshow.com, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Friends, we have to be careful. When I shared that story earlier about the young man who uh, is facing hundreds of years in prison on the charges that allegedly he molested 17 boys ages 2 through 12 over a period of about five and a half years, um, you know something went wrong when he was growing up and what he was raised with. Uh, we're not, we are born sinful fallen creatures, but that level of deviance is a whole different conversation. Please be in prayer for the people in your world who may be wrestling with this. Um, with, when you consider the number of women, for example, who get abortions, more than half of the women who get abortions in America are regular attenders of church. So please let's not think for a minute that because we are good God-fearing Christians who go to church and only hang out with Christians, that someone in our world isn't struggling with an issue this deep and this dark. But please know that God is there and can speak into the life of someone who's been that badly damaged. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, Bill Gaither wrote, but 
God can make something beautiful of your life and of any life too. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, more of my conversation with Shannon Bream as the bottom line continues. Shannon Bream is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. You watch Shannon every Sunday on Fox News Sunday. She's the chief legal correspondent for the Fox News Channel. How many years now? I mean, I, I, you're still in your Uh-oh. late 20s. So, I mean, how many well, years? Have you been I started as a middle schooler. That's right. <laughs> so, I want to say, I think this will be my 16th year at Fox. Wow. So it wow. literally feels like the blink of an eye. And I guess it's a good sign. Yeah, definitely. What is your response when you hear? I mean, I watch the cable news landscape like a lot of other people do too. And there's so many shifting sand moments that seem to be happening with all the different stories to cover. Um, What gives you the most hope that the path that you're on is the right one? I mean, I know you know that personally, but corporately, as far as the Fox News Channel goes. You know what? I love that we try to look for places where there are places of agreement. I mean, what gets ratings? Mm. People arguing yeah. and and making their points. And we want to have people that are very capable, gifted advocates on both sides or all sides of an issue. So I think that's really good because we trust our viewers. They're smart enough to, you know, reason through things and make their own decisions. But I do like where we can find areas of agreement. And we've taped something that's going to be on Fox News Sunday very soon. And it's two members of the Senate from either sides of the aisle who are in a Bible study together. I heard about this and I was like, is this for real? And we reached out to their offices and I can't wait to tell folks a little bit more about that and roll it out. But these are people who on really big issues don't often vote together. I mean, rarely, Mm. Mm. but they feel a real call to be servants and that their faith calls them to that. And they do very quietly have these bipartisan Bible studies. So I feel really, um, you know, blessed to be in a place where we can do those stories too. Wow. I, well, we'll be watching. Check your local listings for an upcoming episode of Fox News Sunday, where Shannon Bream parts the Red Sea again, basically bringing people <laughs> from the left side and the right side together in the Senate. But they I, I, that'll be a the fascinating bringing them together. Yeah. yeah. OK, there you go. But you're the conduit. Uh, the Love Stories of the Bible Speak is the brand new book by Shannon Bream. Biblical lessons on romance, friendship and faith. We have a link for the book up at the bottom line show dot com. Uh, during the break, we were talking about the friendship section of the book. And you mentioned a friendship uh literally, I want to say forged in fire, yep. uh, that that we don't think about as, we kind of think of these guys as accessories, not necessarily, you know, because Daniel's the main guy, but mm-hmm. talk about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego friendship, because they went through a lot together and almost went, you know, all the way out yeah. of this yeah, world yeah. together. Talk about <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. So I don't know about you, but I did grow up in church and Sunday school. So I yeah. would have like a little flannel glass flannel graph, little figures of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there'd be a furnace, mm-hmm. and they go in. And I mean, it's this really um, very descriptive story. And to me, it was one of the great friendships of the Bible, because Daniel and these three men were taken out of Jerusalem. They were they were taken against their wishes away to Babylon to be in the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, they were foreigners in this land, but they were seen as very strong specimens, very bright men who the king wanted to put into his service. But what did he do? He started like stripping away their Hebrew identity changing the food they ate, the language they would speak, the literature that they would study, all of these things. And these men were like, these men were like, no, we we are going to stay true to the God of Israel and to where we come from. And so there are a lot of different tests along the way, even the food that they eat. um, You know, there's a, there's one situation in which the king is so angry. He has a dream and he is so angry at all the wise men of the kingdom, which would include these men now because they had been groomed and trained and were trusted advisors to the king. And he said, I don't want just somebody to tell me what the dream means. I want somebody to tell me what the dream is. And they couldn't do it. And he's like, that's it. Every wise man's getting killed. Well, that would have been Daniel and his men, also his friends. And so 
he goes, um, Daniel says, you know, let me, let me have a chance at this King. And he and his friends go and pray and they ask the Lord to give um, clarity and revelation there. And they stick together in that moment and pray. And Daniel is given the revelation to go to the King who then says, okay, your God is the real deal. He's the capital G of all the gods. I mean, he is the real thing. But it isn't much longer into Daniel where we see Nebuchadnezzar has apparently forgotten that because he puts together this big gold statue and he says to everybody, when you hear the music, you got to stop and bow down to this fake idol. And again, these men are like, we are not doing it. And there's this beautiful passage where Nebuchadnezzar is so angry. He's like, okay, whoever doesn't agree, agree to this, you're getting thrown into a furnace. They heat it up so hot that the men who are assigned to throw the people in are actually killed going to throw the people in. And there's this beautiful passage where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to the king. And they're like, okay, that's it. We're going into the fire. We know our God can save us. We know yeah. he can. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to serve your gods. And I think Amen. it's this beautiful thing of recognizing God can do anything. Now, his will and his way and his plan is sometimes different than what we um you know, would desire and what we pray for. And we have to allow for his sovereignty and trust in that. But these men were like, great, going into the fire. They stuck there. Not one peeled off was like, oh, I'm not with those other guys. I, <laughs> I can do the kneeling down thing during the music. Sure. So they go in and there's three of them in there. Nebuchadnezzar's like, wait a minute, didn't we throw th three people in? There's a fourth. And a lot of people believe that was Christ there with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They come out, not a hair singed, not a fabric singed. They don't even smell like smoke. So Nebuchadnezzar, again, is forced to recognize that these guys, their God is the capital G, the real God. Um, and what a witness and a testimony that these guys, as you said, this is a friendship forged in fire. We all want friends like that, but that requires us also to be friends like that. Yeah, boy, that's powerful. And especially for those of us here in the People's Republic of California, where one <laughs> pastor actually refers to our governor as Governor Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's, it's pretty appropriate, I think. But this is a great reminder of where friendships are forged because i mean what does scripture say a brother is born for adversity and sometimes a brother is born from adversity yeah. and shannon bring brings that to life in a brand new book called the love stories of the bible speak biblical lessons on romance friendship and faith we have a link for the book up at the bottomlineshow.com timely possibly controversial friendship that you get into because i think it gets misconstrued a lot in the culture of course we're talking about david and jonathan and yeah. the friendship that they had and some ways that scripture even describes it and it comes off, you know, some some people misconstrue that as saying, well, they're endorsing more than just a friendship relationship. Talk about what we can learn from David and Jonathan. Yeah. And it's interesting because that friendship's always kind of up for that debate because these guys were so devoted to each other. Yeah. Remember for folks out there to set the stage, King Saul was the king. Jonathan was his son and would have been presumed to be the prince, the next in line. But God had chosen David. So David and Jonathan are the best of friends and Saul murderously wants to kill David. He pulls all kinds of tricks. He gives him one of his yeah. daughters who happens to be in love with David saying, I'm going to use her as a stumbling block. Jonathan never wavers in this friendship to David because he sees that his father is wrong and that God has anointed David to be the next king. He could have said, wait a minute. I'm the prince here. He could have shared in his father's mission to get rid of David, but he didn't. He defended David again and again. And we see them in this deep covenant of friendship that kind of broke all norms of the day. When David did become king uh, and Saul was gone, it, what would have happened back in those days is that he would have wiped out anyone from Saul's family. So there was no claim to the throne. David would have made it his own. But instead, because of this lifelong pledge and non-life pledge that he had with Jonathan, he said, is there anybody left from Jonathan's line? Is there anybody out there that I can serve? And he finds out that Jonathan has this son, Mephibosheth, 
who was hmm. lame, who'd been injured while fleeing for his life. And he's this young boy that is, um, you know, been hidden because the people who had him were afraid that David would wipe him out. Instead, David remembers this pledge and this covenant with Jonathan. And it's like, no, bring Mephibosheth. He's going to be like one of my sons and eat at the table with me. So it was something that was very selfless on both their parts. And um, I had a great conversation with Pastor Darren Whitehead out of Church of the City of Franklin in Nashville. And he talked about people who get this relationship wrong and how it was mm -hmm. very clear that this was, um, you know, a friendship that we it's hard to relate to today because we're not that vulnerable and transparent. Most of us are not running for our lives, which obviously forges into <laughs> friendship when you're under that kind of threat. Um, yeah. But he actually said this should be a model for more men to have these deeper friendships and feel like they can confide in somebody and really have each other's backs in a way that in modern society, we don't always make the time to do. Mm. Boy, it, it, I'm sitting here longing for those friendships that I've had in the past that were that deep, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't think it ever touched David and Jonathan, but you, you've you seen this, Shannon, with the, the men in your life, knowing that uh, your husband, your uh, your world-famous brother-in-law, uh, <laughs> and Tamara, my producer's Braves fan, so of course she's never going to forget that one. Oh, but yeah. the idea that the idea that guys, you know, have that friendship and that need for friendship and to be vulnerable to know and be known is, mm -hmm. is really huge. And Shannon Bream from Fox News Channel has written a new book that talks about friendship love and romantic love. It's called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Shannon, we have got about 90 seconds left in our conversation. And I know there's one overarching story that we haven't talked about yet that I think would put a nice little ribbon on this conversation about God's love for us played out in an Old Testament love story that seems really one-sided. And yeah, it's kind of messy. Um, and I do yeah. include the messy stories. You know that in all these books, because I think there's yeah. beauty to be learned from that. And we're all flawed. I ask for forgiveness every day. So I'm glad <laughs> that God uses flawed people. But Amen. yeah, Hosea and Gomer, he was a prophet. And God told him to go marry this woman who was sort of of ill repute. Gomer, he does. And she is unfaithful to him. They have children and she runs off with other people. And, you know, through the whole thing, you can see God weaving it through with the story of Israel, all the times he pulled them back to his heart and they chased after other things and other gods. And, you know, at the end of his story, God is telling Hosea, go get Gomer, go redeem her. And he bought her sort of out of whatever debt she was in or situation she was in. And it wasn't just that, but he said, I'm going to take you home and love you. Like this mm. is going to be a real marriage. And we see that it was a difficult, ugly thing, but God was saying to Israel, like you run off all the time, but I'm always going to come back and redeem you. And I think the Bible as a whole is God's love story to humanity saying like, I love you unconditionally. I'm just waiting here for you. And um, I may tell you as Christ did in the new Testament with a woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Right. But I'm also going to say, I don't condemn you. I think that's God is saying to us as human beings, he wants that relationship. Yeah, it's John three seventeen for sure. I mean, when we think about the love story that we have between the Lord and us and that redemption that we celebrate, especially this time of year. Shannon Bream, the time always goes by much too quickly, but the books keep coming and they're so good. So we'll just mark our calendar for this time next year and put a date, <laughs> but go ahead and book it in advance. The new book by Shannon Bream is The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Shannon Bream, thanks again for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you. And that concludes my conversation with Fox News Sunday host and anchor Shannon Bream talking about her brand new book called The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com and a copy of the book that we're giving away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 
800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. On the other side of this break, youth pastor and author Mike McGarry talks about why so many young people wind up questioning their way to faith in the discovery of who God is and why faith matters. We're going to talk with him about his brand new book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith, coming up next as the bottom line continues. Stephanie Cover of Cover Law fights for your rights inside and outside the courtroom. As an experienced trial attorney, Stephanie knows that litigating inside a courtroom often costs you more in terms of money, stress, and time. That's why, for the client's sake, she will work hard to settle without the need for a costly trial. Stephanie consistently led her firm in settled cases each month. Because Stephanie worked for insurance companies for decades, she knows how to talk to them. Her knowledge of the insurance process means she's highly qualified and even enjoys talking to insurance adjusters and attorneys on your behalf. Stephanie challenges them with tough questions and holds them accountable for your benefit. When you're in an accident, you want an attorney that will protect your rights and get you the settlement you deserve. Call the attorney who knows the insurance company's processes inside and out and will fight for your total compensation. Call Stephanie Cover at Cover Law today at 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Or just go to kbrightradio.com slash cover today. Well, today here on The Bottom Line, we're going to wander into some rather treacherous territory, especially as it pertains to people who are new in their faith, or uh, maybe even more specifically, young people who are just coming about in their faith. Uh, Dr. Mike McGarry is with us today. The guy spent two decades um, as a youth pastor, and he's written a brand new book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith, which really describes where a lot of young people are today. He's also the founder director of Youth Pastor Theologian. Uh, he and his wife, Tracy, have two teenagers, and they are literally committed to investing in the next generation, which is something we have to be very mindful of when you see how the enemy is in just full-throated attack on uh, going after the hearts and souls of our kids. Dr. Mike McGarry, welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on with you. Boy, 20 years in youth ministry, and you look great. For those who are watching on MyHopeNow.com, our video channel, um, it's really nice to see that Mike has weathered the storm very well. Uh, would you describe them as maybe eight or nine of the happiest years of your life, Mike? Or what, what, what drew you to youth ministry in the first place and kept you there for so long? Well, I, I, I do have significantly less hair now than I did when I started, as you can uh, tell. Yeah. So, well, um, yeah. I, I served as youth pastor for about 18 years and a few years of volunteer um, while I was in seminary. And um, yeah, I, I love youth ministry. And as I'm transitioning now to lead youth pastor theologian, as you mentioned, um, I'm actually strangely going to miss those smelly boys cabins at youth <laughs> retreats and sleeping yeah. on that terrible beds on missions trips and everything. So yeah, I just, I, I love youth ministry and I'm really going to miss it, but I'm excited for what's up ahead. I have a few battle scars myself, not nearly the investment that you made, <laughs> but uh, working with uh, junior high and high school age kids in yeah. ministry and and they're, they're fond memories. But you know, one of the things that I was really taken with in your book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith, which is up at thebottomlineshow.com, is the fact that there are so many young people now who are, we, we see the George Barna statistics and we realize that uh, it's not just a given that when yeah. I was a parent and my kids who are now in their late 20s, early 30s, when they were coming up, 
you could not insulate from the culture, but I mean, there was a way parents could kind of stay in yeah. front of the culture and what's happening. Yeah. Now it's just not happening. And, and and those of us who are in the grandparenting season were saying, hey, I just want to see my grandkids once or twice a month and spoil them. We're being recruited. <laughs> They're right. pulling us in saying, we need all the help we could get. Yeah. But t- talk about some of the significant shifts in youth culture based on what's happening in the culture that you've seen over the past 20 years. Yeah, I mean, social media really... Um, that it's hard to overstate the influence and impact. Um, it, it's just left a, a seismic shift um, in just the landscape of youth mm. culture yeah. and of what it means to be a teenager nowadays. Uh, when I started as a youth pastor, um, uh, it, it was pretty touch and go on, you know, do kids uh, in the ministry have cell phones and you know, for the most part, most of the upperclassmen did. Middle schoolers almost never did. Right. Some of the freshmen, sophomores, you know. Uh, so now it's just everyone, uh, by the time you're in middle school, pretty much has a smartphone, um, oftentimes unrestricted access um, with very limited supervision. Uh, parents, you don't always know what their kids are doing on their on their, on their their smartphones. Who are they, who are they talking to? Um, and so it's just, yeah, it, it's very concerning, um, the ways that, that social media, uh, does radically change, uh, youth culture. I don't think that everything is terrible. I think COVID has shown us that, uh, there is some degree where the internet is not the devil, right? I mean, otherwise right. you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly. Um, and, uh, so th- there's some real blessings and benefits to social media and technology and the internet and things that allows, um, but it does shrink the world and it does give our kids access to some things that we would otherwise really not encourage or promote yeah, for our students to be partaking in. It's important to understand that. And Dr. Mike McGarry is here today on The Bottom Line to help us do just that. His new book is called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. It takes a look at the 20 t- questions, the, the top 20 questions that young people are asking right now. And you'll you'll look at some of these questions and, and say, okay, what is the gospel? Can I be sure of my salvation? Okay, I get it. Can I trust the Bible? But then you're going to find some other ones, you know, that that require a little bit more, you know, maybe uh, empathy. Yeah. How, how does a loving God send people to hell? That type of yeah. stuff. And then you get into some of the, you know, the heavy, you know, way deep in the weeds about sex and dating and evolution and LGBTQ and things like that. How did you compile? Where What was the research that you did? Is this anecdotal just on 20 years of youth ministry or was there a study you were a part of? Where did you come up with these? In, uh, um, yeah, I, I kind of just came up with a list of questions and issues that I've I've talked about a lot with students mm-hmm. and um, some of these are uh, questions that students ask directly pretty frequently, mm-hmm. uh, particularly about gender, sexuality, mental health um, issues like that. Um, and some of the questions students ask uh, sideways, right. About like, what's yeah. the deal with the, like the Trinity. I don't know how many times I've explicitly been asked a question about the Trinity, but I've been asked a lot of times, what makes our God so different from God of, you know, uh, Allah in Islam and, you know, the Old Testament and Judaism and what makes our God different? And the answer to that is the Trinity. Uh, So some of these questions aren't specifically questions that students are asking in a straightforward and direct manner. Mm-hmm. But when I've shown students the table of contents of the book, 
and handed it to them, they're looking through the table of contents and they're like, yeah, these are all questions that I have. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've kind of passed it through a, a fair number of students in my ministry uh, before uh, writing the book and asking just, can you help me confirm? Like, these are questions yeah. that really would be beneficial. And they were all like, yeah, these are, these are really, really good. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Dr. Mike McGarry is my guest today here on the bottom line. Roger Marsh. The book is called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. It's 20 questions that are the top questions that kids are asking right now. And I'm so glad you, you said what you said, Mike, about these are the questions that the kids are asking. These are the questions that the kids want answered. Because oftentimes I get the feeling, and I this is anecdotal, um, you know, that we as adults or parents and grandparents look at young the younger generation today and we say, well, wait, we figured it out. You figure it out. You know what yeah. I mean? God is God. The Bible is the Bible. The church is the church and figure it out. Yeah. And I saw this start to happen when I was last working in active youth ministry, probably about the time you were getting started. And kids were asking questions about, well, why can't we smoke marijuana? What, you know, what, yeah. what about yeah. sleeping together? Yeah. I, my, my own daughter, who's a married mother of uh, one and a half, you know, another one on the way right now, uh, who's a school teacher in the public school system. Yeah. We had the longest spiritual conversation, not about God or the Bible or the Trinity, but whether or not guys and girls who were friends could when they were in college, you know, yeah. because they were just rooming together. It was no big deal. And yeah. I remember thinking, God, why do I have to have this conversation with her? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was yeah. rather indignant, uh -huh. but you begin to realize that that culturally that she was watching TV. What's the big deal? Exactly. Right. What's the big yeah. deal? So talk, talk about one of the other, what, what's the big deal issues that we might look at this book and say, what do you mean that's even a question? And you're going to yeah. say, hey, to kids, it's kind of, can you just give me an answer? Give me a pass so I can move on. Yeah, uh, there are two, two things that come to mind. Um, one uh, that is always a discussion topic uh, about gender um mm -hmm. right now is uh, everyone is asked uh, that's definitely the the chapter that 99 percent of people flip to first uh the, the other topic has to do with tolerance um that may be less um titillating and mm -hmm. um but i think really is probably most foundational for the worldview that the next generation um that gen z and, and even millennials to to a degree really have built their their entire worldviews around uh, the core value of of tolerance, um, and so how do we engage with that? So I think those two topics uh, really are 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 driving a lot of conversations um, with with students and with parents and youth workers who are really stressed and overwhelmed about how do we have these conversations. Um, and I know it could be tempting uh, sometimes to focus on those conversations so much that that's really all we're talking about. And so in the book, I tried to uh, frame the conversations about gender and sexuality, really uh, literally uh, around the gospel um, and to set a theological foundation uh, for these things. So it's not a matter of, well, the Bible says God created Adam and Eve, right? So what's the problem? What's the big deal? Like, how do you not, right? And so sometimes I can hear, uh, fellow believers in Christ just really be pretty condescending mm. about the issues um, in the same way that sometimes we hear from non-believers and think, oh, you know, do we really, do we really have to follow the same tactics? Um, it, it, let's be respectful. Let's be gracious. And let's have our words be seasoned with salt. 
And that the reality is the reason why the Bible teaches about uh, gender and sexuality the way it does is because it reflects Christ in the church mm-hmm. and two men um, in a loving marriage cannot reflect Christ in the church. Two women cannot, re- right. Cannot reflect Christ in the church, uh, changing your gender um, set takes what God said is very good and says, God made a mistake mm. and it's bad. Right. Yeah. And so like, it's not a matter of, well, you're changing my rights and what about freedom of religion? And it's just, sometimes people say like, it's just weird or it creeps me out. Like we need to put those things aside and speak biblically about um, understanding what does the Bible say about gender and sexuality, the meaning of, of male and female um, and so uh, I, I try to approach the conversation from that tactic point uh, with our students. And um, I, I've found much more progress in converse, uh, conversations with students uh, when I take that approach. I love that. Dr. Mike McGarry is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, 20 years in youth ministry as a youth pastor and now the founder director of Youth Pastor Theologian. He's the author of a brand new book that is a must read for parents for sure, but for grandparents too. If you've got kids uh, or grandkids that are entering in the teen years and they're looking at the world and asking these types of questions, even if they aren't articulating them this way, uh, these are questions that you can use as kind of idea starters, conversation starters with your kids. The book is called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, the midpoint of my conversation with pastor and author Mike McGarry. Boy, 20 years in youth ministry and uh, a very insightful young man to be sure. Dr. Mike McGarry is the author of the book, Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And wow, how many copies of this book do we have to give away? Uh, We do have, let's say, two copies, Uh, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Two copies of Mike McGarry's book to help uh, you understand what millennials and Gen Z are going through. And we still have a copy of Shannon Bream's book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith that we're giving away as well. So let's keep Crystal busy. 800-227-5278-800-227-5278-800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC audience, Rabbi Schneider awaits you. For those who remain on the network, uh, more of my conversation with Dr. Mike McGarry on why young people are questioning so much about faith and how it's actually leading them to salvation. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Dr. Mike McGarry is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Mike is the uh, founder and director of a brand new organization called uh, Youth Pastor Theologian after spending 20 uh, plus years as a volunteer and also as a paid staff worker in youth ministry. Uh, Mike has lived to tell the tale and now he's writing about his experiences and the questions young people are asking today in a brand new book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Mike, before the break, you mentioned that, of course, there are a lot of kids who are asking questions about gender and sexuality and things of that nature. And that that is something I think that for those of us who are you know past the age of questioning that type of stuff, um, we don't really give it a second thought. But for kids, it seems like those types of things really dominate their thinking. And another aspect I would imagine, too, that is really important for kids 
is the issue of tolerance and the fact that it seems like Christians are bigoted and homophobic and intolerant, and and yet they talk about the love of Jesus mm-hmm. all the time. Help yeah. us understand the way kids understand tolerance and how do you convince them, show them, persuade them what biblical tolerance looks like? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. Uh, for parents, for youth workers, grandparents to be um, wrestling with and chewing on, even as we listen into the culture, um, a, a lot of what we hear is tolerance. That means like you do you, live your truth. It's all good. Um, and, and so when that's the viewpoint of what tolerance means, uh, then I think we've actually uh, changed what tolerance even is. I mean, tolerance assumes disagreement. Otherwise, there's nothing to tolerate. Right. Like mm-hmm. if if everyone uh, agrees that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, there's no need for tolerance here. Right. But if I just lost some of your listeners by confessing my uh, my unashamed love for Tom Brady, <laughs> then now there's a need for tolerance all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's got to be some something that covers the gap between me and you in our disagreement. So um one of the ways that I've tried to help students to engage in a different way with tolerance is to help them to recognize that tolerance means uh, respect despite disagreement, mm. right? It means respect despite disagreement. So it's not just putting up with someone who disagrees with you because I don't want to just be put up with right. by my atheist friends or you know just my more liberal friends. I don't want them to just put up with me. I want them to respect me. And in the same way, goes vice versa, right? So um, there's disagreement. We're not sweeping over the disagreement. We're not ignoring the disagreement. We're recognizing, hey, there's a disagreement here. There's a need for tolerance. And we're going to cover that disagreement with respect as we engage the disagreement. Mm-hmm. And so how can we help students to, to engage um, in conversations with, uh, with their friends uh, and with their peers and with others? Um, in a way that that embraces a viewpoint of Christian tolerance that believes that we're actually called to love our neighbor as ourselves, to mm-hmm. love our enemy, and to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, how are we any different, right? Jesus said, right? How are you any different if you only love those who love you? Even the exactly. Pharisees and the tax collectors do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if we will not love those who hate us, then the gospel is just a good idea. Hmm. Uh, the gospel is not real. The gospel is not actual. Um, and the gospel is not something that we embody and that we practice before a world who is looking in. And I think this is why we've gotten the reputation that we have, uh, because we, we've just made the gospel a good idea. And we've talked about grace um, as if it's something theoretical, but not mm-hmm. actual. Uh, we never actually give grace to anyone we just talk about it. And so, well, yeah, you, I, I really think that tolerance, tolerance is the new golden rule uh, yeah. is the, is mm-hmm. the reality, right? Yeah, tolerance I, is the new golden rule. I love that. Dr. Mike McGarry is with me today here on the bottom line. The book is called discover questioning your way to faith. It's a book that uh, based on his years of experience in youth ministry, these are the 20 questions that kids are asking in youth group. If they don't you ask a question like, what is the gospel pastor, Mike? I mean, they're, they're not going to, necessarily come up with that question in those words, but uh, the way they, yeah. I, I like the way you said it in the first segment, they come at you kind of sideways with yeah. these questions. And and the idea of tolerance and, and, and things that they're hearing, 
and they're not able to connect the larger truth to the shorter reality of what they uh, claim that they're believing. And then you take the synchronism that's in there too, where someone says, oh yeah, God so loved the world, but karma is a bummer. You know I mean? And you're yeah. like, wait, where did that come from? But <laughs> but uh, you're you're seeing that in youth groups uh, all the time and, and you're yeah. hearing that from youth pastors too. Yeah. Mike, we have a couple minutes left in our time together. As we look at these 20 questions, I'm not going to ask you to rank them. I mean, I would imagine they're in some kind of, you know, order here in terms of the way this goes. They all got a 10. Yeah, there you go. There you <laughs> There's go. There's my ranking. Yeah, it, but it's interesting though, as we think through and just looking at these as a grandparent now who has a, a grandson who's in kindergarten and a granddaughter who's in seventh grade and you know a couple of toddlers coming up. Um, I'm looking at these questions and saying, when my grandkids are in youth group situations, they're going to be asking questions like this. What What's some good advice, a good piece of advice for those of us who are parents and specifically grandparents to look at these questions and then say, okay, how can I start being proactive rather than saying, okay, I'm ready. Oftentimes we'll get a book like yours and hold it up like a shield, you know, say, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever yeah. they come. But I got all I, the answers now, right? Exactly. Exactly. Ask me anything, but we want to be a little more proactive. What's a good way for us to start that conversation, that dialogue? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the name of the book is Discover, Not Answers. Um, mm. And so uh, I would just say, listen and engage in the conversation with them. If, if they're asking hard questions, if, if they're experiencing doubt, uh, don't be afraid. Uh, I know it's really easy for parents, for grandparents, for, for others, uh, when students, uh, children and teenagers, when they start asking hard questions, I know that our anxiety peaks and we start getting afraid of like, Oh no, are they going to walk away too? Or, hmm. you know, I don't know the answers to these questions. Is that going to out me as a bad Christian or <laughs> right? what if I say the wrong thing? And I would just say, just take a deep breath. Um, Jesus is real. Jesus really rose from the grave. Uh, the Holy spirit is real. He has given God has given the Holy Spirit to his church and to his people. Um, you don't have to have every answer. You don't need to freak out when students start asking hard questions. Um, so don't don't give in to fear. Just help help the kids uh, who are asking these questions to ask the questions from a place of faith and recognizing yes. that they're you, you don't need to throw everything out in order to ask some questions. So how can I help you to ask these questions that you have and to navigate these doubts that you're experiencing from a place of faith, holding on to what you do know and holding on to what you are confident about as we talk about and study together about the questions that you are asking and make it a process. Cause I know, um, you know, Roger, we, we both probably have experienced doubt to various degrees at some point in life. And if someone just gave me the right answer right away, I probably would have spit it up. I, yeah. I wouldn't have received it mm -hmm. because when you're really struggling and agonizing over a question and over doubt and uncertainty, you don't want an easy answer because that's just too easy. Um, and so easy answers to hard questions are never satisfying. Uh, so just be patient as God has been patient with you. Be patient with the children and with the teenagers in your life and just walk with them as you discover the truth and the beauty uh, of, of what God's word teaches.
I love it. I love it. This is such a helpful resource, something I know that 20 plus years ago when I was in youth ministry and when my kids were younger, I would have loved to have had a book like this. So Mike, thank you for uh, putting that work into it. Uh, Dr. Mike McGarry, 20 years in youth pastor ministry, now the founder, director of Youth Pastor Theologian. And where do we find you online, by the way? Yeah, you can find me on youthpastortheologian.com or on social media at Youth Theologian. Okay. And the book, Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Dr. Mike McGarry, thanks. Great to meet you, Mike. Thanks for the time, and thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you so much for your ministry and for having me on. Well, a great conversation with Mike McGarry here on The Bottom Line Show. Dr. Mike McGarry is the author of the book called Discover, Questioning Your Way to Faith. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we are giving away a copy of the book right now, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, we have not one, but two copies of this outstanding book by Dr. Mike McGarry, uh, simply called Discover, Question Your Way to Faith. It's what young people are doing. The more that we read up on this, the more that we can figure out how we could do a better job of this as well in terms of if there's a college student in your world, maybe a, a, a grandson or a granddaughter, this would be a great resource for you to have as well. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Have you ever wondered if maybe, just maybe, all of the so-called smart technology that we have available to us here in the United States and basically all over the world, have you ever wondered if maybe that stuff that we call smart is actually making us dumb? Well, on the other side of this break, I want to take a look at a new study that uh, was uh, put together by a couple of uh, foreign schools, and it was published in the Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics Magazine, taking a look at a three-generation cohort study on screen time. And what we see in what younger generations have, you know, the ones who literally had screens shoved in their face from the moment they came out of the womb, and how it compares to folks like you and me who could still remember getting our first color television set at home. We'll take a look at this fascinating study coming up next as the bottom line continues. 833-850-BABY. That's the number I've been telling you about for the past year here on The Bottom Line to call our friends at Preborn and make a tax-deductible donation to save lives. You want a sure thing? Let me give you a couple of guarantees. First, when you call Preborn and make a tax-deductible donation of $28, you are providing an ultrasound appointment for a woman who is facing a pregnancy that perhaps she didn't think was going to happen. Or maybe she's in between insurance and she wants to get more than just a, you know that pregnancy test that she takes at the store. Preborn will do the testing for her. They'll do the ultrasound appointment for her and then tell her what her options are because a lot of women, quite frankly, aren't quite sure. They're told by the world, you're either going to have the baby or you're going to have an abortion. But there's the adoption option and Preborn can explain adoption. Preborn can explain how to go through the attorneys. Preborn can explain all the resources available to you as an expectant mother, whether you are married or not. So we encourage you to make a donation. $28 provides one ultrasound appointment, 280 provides 10, and $15,000 one-time donation to Preborn will give a new ultrasound machine to a Preborn clinic that needs one. Call 833-850-BABY today, 833-850-2229, or click the banner at kbrightradio.com. 
My thanks again to Dr. Mike McGeary here on the bottom line today, joining us for this Super Tuesday conversation about uh, what it means for millennials and Gen Z to question faith and how oftentimes our generation, whether it's greatest generation, baby boomer, or even generation X, when we're challenged by younger listeners, readers, whatever, um, what happens is we'll get a little defensive and say, don't challenge my authority, you punk kid, and we'll kind of write them off. I'm chuckling a little nervously because trust me, I've in my years of youth ministry and then pastoral ministry, I have talked to too many young people who got to be older people who asked the question like, okay, so I brought a joint to Bible study one night. Why did I get kicked out? I mean, if I have a problem with that type of stuff, shouldn't I be in church, not out of church? You know, the, there's, those are some really good questions that young people ask. And oftentimes we expect that the culture is going to back us up when it comes to a biblical worldview. But we have to remember that the idea of the God and country America that many of us grew up in, or at least grew up believing was there. I don't want to say it was a lie, but it was a bit of a misnomer. A misnomer in this sense. Now hear me out. Do I believe America was founded on biblical principles? Absolutely. Do I believe Americans were the first Americans here? No. I mean, obviously there were people here when the Europeans showed up and you know, the French and the Spanish and the English. And, and then of course, the people who were imported in here from Africa. But as we think about the foundation, if you look, it depends on what your foundation is. If the foundation is the Declaration of Independence, then yes. The founders of the United States of America believe that our rights were given to us by God, not by the government. It was a radical concept and that everyone was endowed with these certain inalienable or unalienable rights by their creator, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the time that was negotiated down, there were something like uh, 60 different revisions of the original Declaration of Independence that they started the draft on in mid-June. The one they finally settled on in July 4th, that wasn't actually signed until August or something like that but we have the romantic story of signing it on July 4th. If that had been the basis of the United States government, then we could easily say that we're a Christian nation, but you know what happened? The language about slavery thrown away. There was a big, pretty biting, scathing criticism of slavery from Thomas Jefferson about King George in the original Declaration of Independence. That didn't show up in the final draft that was signed. And then by the time that the laws were passed, well, well, what do you know? 20% of America is still indentured. They're enslaved. And that, that, was, that was nuts. That was crazy. But the, the reason I, I bring all that up is because many of us grew up in a nation where we believe that, you know, God is the center of the universe, our moral compass, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of other people don't share those values or they question those values. And oftentimes our response to the church that I believe has been negligent has not been that we, you know, just dismiss them out of hand, but that we didn't hear what they were asking. They didn't hear what they were saying. And it's interesting because there, everybody had similar learning styles up until maybe three generations ago. We were an agricultural uh, society, then we became manufacturing and industrial, and then we the information age showed up. And with the advent of the starting, I'm talking about portable stuff. Um, when you start with the, uh, the transistor radio that gave us mass media that could travel anywhere with you, the tube radio of the car and the transistor portable that took you anywhere. Think about the transistor uh, type portability that we have now with the computer. I'm looking at my watch. I've got a Galaxy or my watch, which is also my phone, which is also a mobile computer. It's the Galaxy S uh, 23 Plus. 
And this thing's amazing, fantastic volume, good reception, good video. I can email text, I can search stuff online, I can write things. I mean, it's incredible to think this is the same size as my transistor radio when I was a kid where I could turn on AM stations and listen to baseball and uh, music and news and that type of stuff. But kids are learning things digitally now. I remember when my oldest daughter, Emily, was born on January 3rd, 1988. And shortly before then, my parents had given her mother and me their old VCR, video cassette recorder, so that we could take pictures of our little darling. And we took a few and then we didn't. We had cameras, but we didn't take a lot of pictures. We weren't that obsessed with it. It wasn't until the smartphone technology started to happen in the early 2000s. By the time the iPhone came out, I believe in the summer of 2006, then everybody became obsessed with taking pictures and loading video. And 10 years later, if you look at my Facebook feed, I was Facebook living every day for bottom line show. And you know, we just record, 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 record. But my oldest daughter, who is going to be 36 in a couple of months, got her first cell phone when she was 14, almost 15. Today, kids are getting mobile devices. Well, we had the grandkids over here not too long ago. Zipporah and Nazareth were trucking around the house. Naz is 10 months old. Zipporah's two and a half. And Zipporah was working her mom's. It's actually kind of cute. She'll pick up her mom's phone and go walking down the hallway like she's in a conference call. But digital technology is happening. So we used to, uh, you know, have to make peace with the so-called digital native the kids who grew up in a world where that's all they ever knew. And we were the digital immigrants, as it were. But now there's a new phenomenon that's happening, and it's called digital dementia. Literally, where people are either, as they're older, are losing their ability to retain information because they've got so much digitized access to info. And digital dementia, also, how about digital delays? Tohoku University in Japan, in collaboration with Hamamatsu University School of Medicine, conducted a study. They examined 7,000 mother-child pairs participating in the Tohoku Medical Megabank Project birth and three-generation cohort study. Every child's screen time exposure was assessed using parental questionnaires covering viewing of television, video game displays, tablets, mobile phones, etc., etc. It's very interesting. What they did was they, they, the children in the category were evenly split, about 52% boys, 48% girls. The screen time exposure was assigned to the categories of either less than one hour, uh, one to less than two hours, two to less than four, or four or more. You'll be happy to know that the number of kids that saw four or more hours of screen time every day was only 4.1%. Did I mention the children were all one years old? one-year-old actually the children's development then was assessed at age two and age four in those five domains communication gross motor skills fine motor skills problem solving and personal and social skills uh, previous studies have not really gone that deep this one actually did but when you consider what happens to the kids when they've had that much screen time from age one to age two well, you're going to be shocked when you hear what the statistical analysis is. Do smartphones actually wind up dumbing down kids? We're going to talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. 
Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Every time you hear a Democrat saying, we need to lower the voting age from 18 to 16, kids are perfectly capable of making those decisions. Four-year-olds should be able to determine their gender. But then, when it comes to anything that has to do with faith in Christ, oh, no, we couldn't possibly have that church and state stuff. Get the Christians off of college campuses while they're trying to indoctrinate our young people. Well, are the kids capable of making better decisions? There was a time when the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18 because a young person was deemed to be an adult at the age of 18. You could vote, you could drive a car, you could go to war. Nowadays, you have to wonder. Some parents will say, look, my kid's amazing. My kid's brilliant because look at all the things they can do online. But this study from the Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics a cooperative effort between Hamamatsu University School of Medicine and Tohoku University in Japan studied 7,000 mother-child pairs starting with the kids when they were a year old. They asked the parents questions covering how much television time they had, video game displays, tablets, mobile phones, etc., etc. How much time they were with technology. 52% of the respondents were boys, 48% were girls. Uh, basically 48% of the subjects actually had less than an hour a day of screen time. 29% of the subjects had between one and two hours and 18% had between two and four hours. Only 4% had more than four hours. They then checked the kids in five different areas, communication, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, problem solving, and personal and social skills. And they did assessments at age two and at age four. For the children age two, increased string time when age one was associated with developmental delays in every d domain. By age four, increased screen time was associated with developmental delays only in communication and problem solving. Now, the full report we'll put up, Science Daily posted this, and we'll put it up at thebottomlineshow.com. But please notice the delays between age one and age two. If you were told by the leading nutritional expert. Don't give your kids carrots between age one and age two because it will cause developmental delays. You can bet every mother, every father, but mostly every mother, would throw every carrot into the river. If you told them that eating too much sugar would cause developmental delays, no problem whatsoever getting rid of that sugar. But now tell the kids that if you spend, you know, an hour a day with the video or two hours a day and these are screens these aren't just the mobile portable ones these are screens 
whether it be a video game display, television, tablet, mobile phone, any electronic screen. This is huge, though. All five areas, whether it be uh, communication, fine motor skills, gross motor skills, problem solving, and personal and social skills, between age one and age two, with any level of screen time, there were developmental delays. But by age four, increasing screen time was only associated with communication and problem solving. Oh, well, that's good to know. I'm thrilled that my kid won't be able to communicate as well, and I'm overjoyed that he won't be able to problem solve as much because of all the increased screen time. Did you hear the sarcasm there? Man. So we wonder, and we blame the generation, and we blame the kids. Why are you so lazy, and why are you so this, and why are you that? May I be so bold as to suggest that this is a place where we as parents and especially grandparents can step in. If you have grandkid time with your grandkids at all, the rest of this month, during the holidays, whatever it is, do everything you possibly can to avoid having them have lots of screen time. Read stories to them, take them for walks, take them to athletic events. Um, you know, even something like the movie is technically considered screen time. So take them to live theater. Teach them how to ride a bike or ride an instrument or do something like that. Any kind of interactivity. I'm mindful of the fact that when I visit my grandson Isaac, for example, we'll mess around after school and he always has the TV on. We're doing crafts, we're playing games, we're building puzzles, we're doing all sorts of stuff. But somewhere in the background, that noise is on. I am going to purpose with him and all of our grandkids to have music on in the background, but not a screen. If you wonder why this generation is so biblically illiterate, why the biblical worldview of Generation Z hovers around 2%, this might be a good reason why. Because not only are they spending so much time with screens, two to four hours a day is too many, but they're spending time with screens and they don't have the ability to adequately communicate and they don't have the ability to problem solve. So they'll look for the easiest way out. We have a problem of sin in our world. And God created the solution to the problem. The solution is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes that his blood pays the penalty for your sin and my sin and now is our Lord and Savior for us to follow him will have eternal life. It doesn't mean we go, hey, thanks for paying my bar tab, Jesus. I'm going to keep sinning. The indication that you actually have received that good news is that your life looks different. That's the good news. And that's the bottom line.